podcast listeners. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Monday, September 5th, 2022. Joining me here in the studio are three of our crack members of the NK News and NK Pro Team and Korea Pro Team to discuss some of the recent news stories out of and about North Korea. Before we begin, please, everyone, leave a review about this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use and share this podcast episode with colleagues, friends, even enemies. Secondly, check out NK News where you can find all, well, many of the in-depth stories written by the excellent journalists that I'll be talking to today. Consider buying a subscription to NK News for a year. It's more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, which is even less than a cup of coffee per day, and it helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out daily. Thirdly, follow all of us on Twitter. Now, to introduce our three guests today, we have my colleagues James Fretwell, Jongmin Kim, and Yifang Bremer. Welcome on the show, Jongmin, James, and Yifang. Good morning. Morning. Hello. Thank you very much. Okay, so Park Sung-hak, North Korean defector, Park Sung-hak, an activist whose organization, Fighters for Free North Korea, regularly sends balloons carrying anti-Kim Jong-un propaganda and lately COVID-19 relief supplies to North Korea. He's been in the news again. What happened to him on August 15th, Ifang, which is, of course, National Liberation Day here in, in South Korea? That's right. So it was National Liberation Day, and uh, Park Sang-ak was doing a speech in central Seoul. Just around the corner? Just around the corner, actually. And when he got off stage, he got attacked with a metal pipe, which actually cost him a fracture in his arm. Boy. And led him to be hospitalized for, uh, I think, a couple of days, Jungmin? A week. A week. Wow. Okay. And this all happened quite quickly in the middle of a crowd of people, right? That's right. It was a very chaotic scene. A lot of yeah. people. Gwangamun Square, where this happened, was completely packed with maybe tens of thousands of people. So it was right. a very, very chaotic scene. Yeah. Now, would it be fair to categorize this rally that he was speaking at as a conservative, uh, a right-leaning rally on Liberation Day? Uh, it was a mixture of many organizations, but it was mostly conservative groups who mm -hmm. were basically um, talking about anti-communist ideas. They were um, they were condemning um, the South Korean government for certain policies related to North Korea recently, like engagement-related policies. Mm -hmm. They were um, they were criticizing um, so-called pro-North people in South Korea. Um, it was just like an occasion for them to gather around and. Okay, so presumably th these would not be the people who are favorable to a to the anti-leaflet law, so-called. Favorable to anti-leaflet law. Right, that they would be people who would be opposed to the anti-leaflet law. Right, so these were the people who would support... Pakistan's activities. Exactly. Right. But it, it doesn't mean that they are... You know, filtering out who's in the crowd, right? Right, so right. Who, anybody you, we, can turn yeah, anybody can. I could have gone there. to a rally if I'd wanted to. Yeah. So, what do we know about the attacker, Ifung, this man who hit uh, Park Sang Hak with a pipe, uh, breaking his arm? So we actually don't know that much, but there was quickly like footage circulating on social media, which showed this man in his in his fifties. Uh, media reports later identified him as the fifty-five-year-old E Hagen. Uh, a seafood supplier from Busan, and pretty quickly after the attack, he was already like apprehended by police. Mm -hmm. But he, either way, he managed to give an interview from a prison cell, or mm. perhaps through his wife, um, who was present there and who helped uh, pro-unification media to let him talk about why he did it. 
And according to this Mr. Lee, he wanted to punish uh, Park Sang-ak for his acts of sending these leaflets into the north and to end the war and confrontation and to accomplish peace. Ah, so that, that, that actually it sounds like a, a complex motivation. So on the one hand, he's punishing Park Sang-hak. He's opposed to Park Sang-hak's activities. Right. On the other hand, he wants to accomplish peace on the Korean peninsula uh, between the two Koreas. Well, these what And we those are related. Yeah. Because from this person's pro-unification person's point of view, Park Sang-hak, and also this comes just a few days after North Korean leader sister Kim Yo-jong wrote a statement, mm. with, did a speech against the... Uh, uh, leafleting activists saying that these are like crime against humanity, these spread COVID into North Korea, and that the UN administration should be punishing them, but they're not. So from pro-unification um, group's point of view, uh, Park sang could be seen as someone who is very actively going against unification and peace on the Korean Peninsula. And what we also know from this attack is that it, it seems to be pre-planned because he was carrying a note Ah. Uh, condemning uh, Park Sang-ak. So it was not like a random person in the crowd who got angry. Right. Um, he definitely planned to harm uh, Park Sang-ak. Mm. And what's, what's quite interesting is that what, what we did is we, we, we found a, a video footage of uh, the attacker mm-hmm. and took a still, took a screenshot of yeah. it. And then we used some facial recognition uh, open source Ooh. software. And we found that this man actually has quite a long history of protesting mm-hmm. uh, against the U.S. Uh, we found uh, a picture of him, exact same man, uh, carrying a sign that read, No Trump, No War, back in 2017. Mm. Um, so he's definitely ideologically motivated right. in his acts and seems to be part of this uh, yeah, pro-unification uh, movement for quite a long time, yeah. Right, so it, it it sounds like very much a politically uh, related, a politically motivated attack. Right now, I, I suppose the irony here is that, in a sense, both of them, both what was the, the name of the attacker again? Ihagun. Ihagun. Both Ihagun and Park Sang-hak would would both say that they're pro unification, but very different approaches. Right, yes. one through uh, causing regime change and collapse in North Korea, that would be Park Sang Park Sang-hak's chosen method. And the other one, uh, Ihagun, would, would uh, choose it through rapprochement and trust building and, uh, and confederation, etc. That kind of a, a path to unification. Uh, how is Park doing now, Jongmin? I've been talking to him um, regularly. I think he's better now. He got out of hospital. Um, he can still move around. And when I last talked to him on the phone, he was saying that uh, he would have been injured very seriously um, if that metal pipe hit his head but fortunately it did not so only his arms broken so he was like my other parts of the body's fine so I'm right. gonna do the balloon launch balloon launch sooner or later and he did and he told me just this morning a few hours uh, one, an hour ago that uh-huh. he conducted another balloon launch in Incheon Kanghua over the weekend wow okay so uh, d- just to go back there so he, his arm was struck but that is if I understand correctly because he had raised his arm in self-defense near his head, mm-hmm. and that's where the pipe hit him uh, in, in pr- presumably the forearm. Exactly, that's the how would, uh, right arm. His right, uh, his right forearm. Uh, ra- so it could have gone, could have hit his, he could have hit his skull, could have cracked his head open. But he's uh, lucky; he just got a uh, an arm fracture. 
uh, and he's gone and and done another one of these these balloon launches. Now, what kind? What's being sent with these balloons? There's obviously there's propaganda leaflets, but there's some sort of COVID relief supplies. What kind of COVID relief supplies are they sending, Jongmin? So FFNK and Park Sangok, they usually in the past they usually launched the USB dollar bills and anti North Korea leaflets through these balloons. But after COVID nineteen. Um, after North Korea admitted that they have COVID-19 spread in the country, Park Sangak stopped including, allegedly stopped including leaflets into these balloons, but he um, got the donations from supporters to send vitamins, Tylenols, and face masks mm. um, uh, to fight against COVID-19. But I'm not sure if we can technically call it a suspension of sending um, anti-regime leaflets because in usually in one of the balloons that he sends, if you look at the video that he sends, mm-hmm. there's usually attached one big poster to one of the balloons that he holds for follow-up. Right. And then um, it usually has some sort of statements that mm-hmm. North Korean side would see as insulting or yeah. confrontational. And this time... Or an unflattering picture of Kim Jong-un. Exactly. Um, like last time, I think he also used the photo of Kim Jong-un crying when mm. Kim Jong-il died. Mm-hmm. That's considered a major insult in North Korea. And this time um, over the weekend, interestingly, I didn't write it yet, but he included the photo of Kim Yo-jong ah. as well with Kim Jong-un saying that South Korea should exterminate both of them. Well, those are strong words. Um, what's the status of Park's group and its activities under the so-called anti-leafing law? Is he under investigation? Mm-hmm. Is there an indictment underway? Has he been arrested and charged? He was indicted, and I think his um, the sentencing, the, the ruling is upcoming mm-hmm. um, sometime this year, later. Okay. But he's showing no intention of or no sign of... Uh, slowing down or stopping his activities as a result of these legal He usually announces that his actions are actively going against the anti-leaflet law that should, to show that it's wrong. Okay, now th- this attack on August 15th here in, in Kuang Hwa Moon, uh, is this part of a broader trend against defender activist groups or, or was the uh, attacker possibly an outlying extremist, Yifeng? I would I would definitely not say there's a trend going on, but uh, you could say that the attacker was part of this kind of French group of yes somewhat some would call it radical pro unification uh, activists who also advocate um a lot of you know uh, we, we, we sh- that everyone should be able to read Kim Il Sung's memoirs that mm-hmm. kind of thing so there 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 are definitely groups in South Korea that are considered radically left mm-hmm. uh, to some pro unification but I wouldn't say that they're usually violent mm. right so it kind of breaks with that but there are def- it definitely shows that there are groups even though there might be small groups that have very very different views yeah and possibly you know can clash also physically apparently question without notice uh has any group come out in support of ihagun's activities ihagun's alleged attack on park sangak has anyone come out and said yeah, we stand behind this, this is a good thing, we're going to fund his legal defense, or anything like that. I don't know the name of particular groups, but right. there are definitely a lot of Facebook posts going around ah. uh, in support of Ihagen mm. um, and people calling to um, release him Gosh. Um, <clears throat> and to punish Pak Sangak. Ah. Um, and the people who post these kind of things um, are also commenting on articles uh, from 
pro unification uh, small independent media outlets. Mm, um, yeah. For example, there's there's a, there's there's one called Minplus, and they published an uh, an interview with the attacker ah. almost right after, and also in yeah really allowed him to you know say why he did it mm -hmm. and uh in a way also pro uh praising his efforts yeah goodness me okay well we'll keep an eye on uh on that to see particularly interested to see whether there's some kind of crowdfunding platform that's set up to uh to fund the guys um ihagun's legal defense fund that would be interesting to see but we'll find out about that uh, next time okay uh, next topic jongmin Tell us about Ulchi Freedom Shield. Once was called Ulchi Focus Lens and Ulchi Freedom Guardian. Now it's Ulchi Freedom Shield, UFS. What was it and how long was it and what did it do? Well, it's the first time that uh, live, uh, live action field training exercises have resumed since the last time in 2018. Mm -hmm. The drill, drills, uh, field training drills were suspended during the diplomatic engagement with North Korea um, and also after COVID-19 in order to prevent them becoming a super spreader event. So they were um, downscaled as well. So ah. for the for past five years, it was mostly the computer-based simulation um, war games. But um, this time, it's the first time that res they resumed and there were also live fire drills, including a lot uh, some missiles like Hellfire. Um, and it's also the first drills between after after the Yoon Seok-yeol administration inaugurated and it's also a very important one considering the uh, South Korea's ambitions with Opcon transfer where time mm -hmm. operational control they had to assess the second phase um, FOC for the for the Opcon transfer um, so because of that a South Korean uh, officer was in charge this time of the entire drills um, it was for the the field training exercises were conducted for nine days and those were part one and part two five days four days and before those nine days there were also a week of Ulchi mm -hmm. uh, training which is a government state level exercises to prepare for a peacetime response to North Korean um, quote-unquote provocation. Okay, which kind of like a civil defense drill? Yes, civil defense training. Uh, what to do if there's a building hit or on fire or something like that? Well, it depends chemical on... Chemical attacks? Right, it depends on which department the mm. uh, uh, the officials are in part of. What I heard from some people who had to do it this time was that it usually goes with um, everybody in the branch just um, staying up all night ah. and not going to bed and just staying in the office to mm. prepare for certain... Scenarios, for example, if it's a spokesperson's office, they will have to train writing a press statement in like quick notice. Right. When there's right. war. And there were presumably that means that uh, a lot more yellow jackets than usual be, were being worn during that uh, that Ulchi exercise. So it was like two and a half weeks uh, Ulchi Freedom Shield, and as you said, part one and part two. So part one then was a repelling the DPRK scenario. What did that look like? Well, the uh, repelling, uh, the hypothesis here is that there is a hypothetical North Korean invasion of Seoul metropolitan area. So the allies will, they, they practice um, uh, basically, like, like it says, repelling them and then protect, further protecting the Seoul metropolitan area. So it did involve some field training exercises, but there were not, sh not much detail actually revealed from part one. But this is definitely the, the stage that practices the 
um, change from a peacetime to wartime responses mm-hmm. um, so that the allies can coordinate what they can do when something like that happens. Right, and it's based on the uh, the scenario of of North Korea launching an invasion on South Korea, and so it's repelling, pushing back yeah, exactly. uh, the, the DPRK. Then part two, moving into a counterattack scenario. How did that go? The counterattack scenario, North Korean propaganda outlets really, really didn't like this mm. idea. Um, and to be clear, the allies did not go into details on what the scenarios are, apparently. Ah. But there were some media reports that said that this aims at a practicing the scenario of going through Kaesong to do a counterattack against Pyongyang. Right. So this part, although the Allies never fully confirmed this, North Koreans really, really hated this. Mm. So the propaganda outlets kept saying that because of these counterattack scenarios, this this is an invasion um, practice from the Allies with an attempt to uh, bring down the regime. Um, And there were some details revealed, like the nine-day field training exercises involving the um, practice how to remove the weapons of mass destruction, meaning nukes and others. Right. Um, and also there were some live fire drills in multiple regions in South Korea on the phase two uh, mm-hmm. week. The the combined division, the second infantry division in South Korea, they were uh, in charge of it. And the assets involved, they were Hellfire missiles air to surface from the Apache and then the um, multiple rocket launchers involved as well. And, um, yeah, so some of the other aspects. I'm just curious, when uh, you say that, that North Korea really hated the, uh, the counterattack scenario, I always wonder in these situations, what actually can North Korea, what can it know about what's going on? I mean, it, it doesn't, does it have any visibility or, or audibility on these things at all, or does it only know what the South Korean media tells them? Bit of both. So first of all, um, the if you actually baseline the wordings that they use, they pick up the South Korean media articles and cite them as defense ministry said, but they uh-huh. actually never said it. Uh-huh. So media reports actually play a very big part in mm-hmm. how North Korea uh, propaganda outlets say anything about these drills. But another part of it is that um, if you look at the articles, especially the longer ones that are like bylined by specific researchers and the propaganda outlets, like mm. yesterday there was an article from International um, International Relations Research Center in North Korea. They wrote something for KCNA. And they cite past experiences uh, examples of these drills so so they baseline what it used to look like before and what kind of operation plans they they had before and their premises it probably didn't change much ah. um so they um usually criticize the ongoing drills based on the wordings they know from the past like decades ago like oh, for gosh. example like operation plan yep. um there there are two operation plans that we know of in the past two decades mm-hmm. um um the five uh, 5015 and um something else um, much longer in the past, like in the in 90s, I think. Oh. And a lot of uh, outlets like Aryang Meari, Urimin Jokiri, Tongil Voice, they all cite this operation plan for saying that um, they attempt at a, preempt- a nuclear preemptive strike against North Korea. Right. They want to do decapitation ah. of Kim Jong-un. They want to um, march to Pyongyang and yep. just take over the city. 
um, this sort of thing. And these are also from like past media outlets as well. Uh, so not necessarily relevant to this current exercise. Then. Sometimes they are because okay. they sometimes um, echo some of the things that the Allies said recently. For example, right. Yoon Suk Yeol visiting the wartime bunker. Yep. The Allies talking about the uh, extended deterrence and possibilities of deploying um, strategic assets from the United States and how they have the counterattack drills in the part two sort of thing. They do echo some of the things that are new, but many of their logic actually comes from what they used to think from the past drills. Okay, so let's talk a bit more about uh, President Yoon's visit to the wartime bunker. Was that just for a photo op or, or was that functional? What was the, uh, the overall purpose of his visit? It's kind of both because um, using that as a photo op shows that Yoon is in charge of things and mm. that he was there. Um, the wartime bunker thing, it's not like he actually ordered new things, but it's more like him visiting the bunker for the first time. That's a wartime bunker, B1, specific location on, uh, on not revealed. Um, but he basically... Do we know where that is? I, I know, okay. but yeah. But don't, re- <laughs> don't reveal it, but we know. It's within some sort of commanding facility in the military. Mm. Um, and it's... Um, he delivered a speech in front of the allies who was going through UFS and he said that it's really important to um, uh, update the wartime operation plans actually um, along with the evolving threats from North Korea. Now, I believe that uh, North Korea tested two cruise missiles just before uh, UFS kicked off. Uh, Was that coincidental, do you think? Well, I would love to ask them, but um, there there have been uh, not that many cruise missile activities in the past few weeks, so it, w- it was a definitely interesting timing. But during the UFS, I don't think there were any like um, publicized missile tests. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's uh, the UFS is over now, so that's something to keep an eye on. But the cruise missile test it was um, off the coast of uh, uh, off the west coast and. Um, it was the first cruise known uh, North Korean missile test since they fired the eight uh, many different types of short-range ballistic missiles in early June. So it's been a while. Uh-huh. Now, the, uh, these joint combined drills are, uh, are wrapped up now. Do we have any statements from uh, South Korea or U.S. military or Combined Forces Command about how well they went and what was achieved well, one thing I remember, this was actually at the start of the UFS, the defense minister of South Korea, Lee Jong-sub, actually quoted Top Gun and said that it's not about the plane, it's about the pilot, saying that it's important to, you know, stand side by side and, you know, fight together. That's a movie, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've not seen it, but I heard it's pretty p- popular. Yeah. Right. And also, uh, General Paul Akamara also talked about how it was a very important drill for the allies to uh be ready to fight tonight like we always say oh that's a slogan well not not we but they <laughs> i think we say it ironically but the military say it for real right ready to fight today and tonight right uh well but then Hi, Dan it, Pinkston, if you're listening <laughs> but when it comes to specific details and specific drills um like we imagine there's not much but it's more about the values that they aimed at we should say we're ready to type today and tonight Fi- ready to type tonight right uh, okay, well, thank you for that uh, that wrap-up there of the joint combined drills. James, congratulations are in order for Kim Jong-un declaring victory over COVID-19. That's a bit, pretty big deal. Indeed. It's all over in North Korea, or is it? Because the statistics that the country is reporting, um, they're, they're a little bit odd. I mean, we had this 
uh, outbreak, the first outbreak ever in North Korea after two years of no COVID in North Korea in late April, apparently, according to the DPRK. Um, the virus came into the country. And then in the space of just a couple of months, there were, there were 4.7 million mm. cases of fever, which is kind of this euphemism for for COVID-19 now. Well, or it's a stand-in because they never did high level of PCR testing. So all you can do right. is test with the thermometer. Exactly, yes. Um, now, bear in mind, if we're going to assume North Korea, what, it has a population, we don't know for certain, but around 20 million, let's say, that's a quarter of the population. That's yeah. a lot of people. And then in late July, no more reports of extra fever cases. Um, the death rate from this outbreak was improbably low. So we don't really know what's going on there. Um, and another kind of uh, key thing to bear in mind is that even though uh, North Korea declared victory over COVID, Kim Jong-un still emphasized that we need to maintain the steel-strong anti-epidemic barrier uh, to stop new variants coming in from the country. Uh, so in a lot of ways, of course, COVID um, can kill, um, but North Korea is also doing a lot of damage to its own economy through its really strict border lockdowns. And um, you have to feel for the people that are in need of aid um, because that's only really trickling into the country. Um, and also people in the border areas who used to, their economy used to rely on smuggling back and forth between China, and that's really been clamped down on. So you could say that these measures um, are doing, uh, you know, well, a lot of damage anyway. If, if North Korea opened up their border slightly, maybe it would make things easier for the general population. What does Kim Jong-un mean by victory? How does he define that term? Um, well, as, as I said, the number of cases, uh, reported cases, basically dropped to zero. So I think he's using this as, a, as an opportunity to promote himself. North Koreans have been suffering over the last two and a half years because of these, this, uh, this border lockdown. And so I think that North Korea is using this as an opportunity to show, you know, actually... Um, it's not it's not our fault that you guys have been suffering. We've actually been doing a really good job at dealing with this crisis. And look, even when the virus entered the country, we dealt with it in only a couple of months. This mm. is really a miracle and all praise be to Kim Jong-un. So he's really saying we've shown the virus the door. Um, but be careful because there could be new variants. There could be new variants. Is he saying that or is that you saying that? Uh, that's what Kim Jong-un said. Okay. Uh, so does this mean that North Korea will be opening its border anytime soon? Do we see any signs of that? I think we had a report on NK News that su suggested maybe there were some rumors about people coming, you know, back into the country possibly. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Has a, a, a large section of the North Korean population been vaccinated and are COVID treatment drugs available? Now, we don't know, probably not. Um, there were reports about um, some North Koreans being, uh, having received vaccines from China. We don't know what vaccines. We don't know how many. We don't know 
Who too, but this suggests that um, despite North Korean state media constantly casting doubt on the um, on how well vaccines work, that at least a, a few people have received these vaccines. As for medicine, again, it's hard to tell exactly what is coming into the country, um, but NK Pro did report on supplies coming over from China um, shortly out after state media reported on the outbreak. So. Yes, there's probably um, some COVID-19 treatments coming into the country. It's probably going to the, um, the elite and not the general population. And um, that aid that uh, is going to the elite, we, we, we think uh, could be possibly going through a much shorter quarantine um, time. So imports coming into the country, uh, usually they, they can be kept in quarantine for, for months, months, which is yeah. really creating this severe bottleneck um, on what's coming into the country. What are the risks of Kim Jong-un promote, uh, sorry, proclaiming this victory over COVID? Well, of course, if he proclaims a victory over COVID and then there really is another huge outbreak, um, then he's going to look quite silly, isn't he? Well, is it possible? I mean, you mentioned that the, uh, the death rate in, in North Korea for the big surge they had in April and May sounded impossibly low. Is it possible that large numbers are dying or being hospitalized and then dying and that's simply being kept secret or covered up? Well, of course, North Korea is not known for its transparency. So um, anything could be the case. Um, Perhaps, yes, perhaps the situation is a lot worse um, than, than we know. Perhaps North Korea wanted to exaggerate the situation for propaganda purposes and then claim mm. victory and look at how well we did right. against this massive outbreak. It's really difficult to tell. Right. Because, you know, on the other hand, if there were, I don't know, mass graves or mass piles of bodies being burned outside hospitals, we'd probably see that through uh, satellite photography as well. Right. So again, but uh, yes, as you say, it's probably not, um, you know, huge numbers of, of deaths. We don't mm. know, but it, if it, the, the point is that according to medical experts, if there were as many cases of COVID as yeah. North Korea is suggesting, then the death rate would definitely be much higher. North Korea yeah. just doesn't have that kind of uh, ability to treat these large scale breakouts so right. well. Can you think of any other countries that have claimed total victory over COVID at this stage? I think Turkmenistan, um, I'm not sure whether victory, but I know that they, um, I, maybe this isn't the case anymore, but they, they were claiming zero COVID for mm. quite a long time, uh, along with North Korea. Um, in terms of declaring victory, I mean, China, I remember they, they had the famous Wuhan pool party if you remember that, shortly after the start of the um, mm. outbreak in 2020. Of course, Wuhan was uh, widely reported in uh, international media to be the um, origin of the virus. And then a few months later, China held this huge party with people packed closely together without masks in a pool, having fun, uh, likely to show the world uh, again, you know, look how well we have done with dealing right. with the virus while the rest of the world is is messing this up. Is there any sign whether the North Korean population is equally bullish about the COVID situation or is Kim Jong-un really sort of out on a limb here? Again, it's difficult to tell, but um, it does seem that a, a few lockdowns within the country measures perhaps might have been relaxed a bit. But um, yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see on that one because... 
Um, as listeners, I'm, I'm sure are aware there are very few non-North Korean eyes on the ground at the moment. Most uh, diplomats from Western countries have, have, have left North Korea because of the COVID-19 restrictions. Mm. There are no foreign humanitarian workers. Um, so we'll, we'll be keeping an eye out on that one. All right. Thanks, James. Okay, Jongmin, back to you. What is President Yoon's audacious plan or audacious initiative to revitalize North Korea's economy? It's Tamdehan Gusang in Korean, and I'm not sure who named it because um, it's basically saying that his own initiative is audacious. Um, but okay. I, I was imagining because he named it audacious, uh, mm. there would be um, suggestions regarding military concerns from North Korea. Actually, that I think would be audacious. But mm. So far, it seems like the focus is on economy. That's why it's kind of similar to previous previous conservative um, administration's ideas. Um, But the point is, if North Korea takes genuine and substantive steps toward denuclearization or show what they call a solid will towards denuclearization, um, basically Seoul can aid North Korea with bunch of um, economic um, cooperation and assistance ideas, for example, like large-scale food program, um, also um, uh, helping North Koreans modernize their ports and airports for international trade, uh, strengthen their health care, um, some sort of mineral-related cooperations as well, despite the UN Security Council um, sanctions on them. Um, and so on and so forth. Is this very different from what President Moon Jae-in had hoped to do if things had gone better after the Hanoi summit? I don't think this is at all different from any of the economic <laughs> initiatives of, of previous conservative and progressive administrations. Okay. I, because I'm speaking as you know myself yeah. right now, I'm just honestly saying that it's not creative. Okay, um, so an audacious initiative is really a rehashed initiative. It's not such an audacious initiative. Right. And, uh, um, we've seen this initiative before. Right, but I think maybe some of them become became a bit of uh, that sa- that there are things that then that sound a bit more larger scale okay and things like helping North Korea with modernizing ports and um, mineral cooperation uh-huh. that could be a bit um, you know outside the comfort zone a little bit because they have to discuss sanctions issues but right. This is largely very similar to Im Young-bak era's um, Vision 3000, which was oh, to yeah. offer enough aid to North Korea to raise their uh, GDP per capita to th- uh, $3,000 mm-hmm. uh, if it surrendered uh, their nuclear weapon. Right, and Park Geun-hye with her jackpot or bonanza plan, that was a bit similar too, wasn't it? I the think Daebak? it's like a bit of a merge of both. Um, the the officials who used to work for both administrations oh, are yeah. now in UN administration. So. So, okay, so apart from the, the, the ports that you made, is there anything else that's really specifically new here that we haven't seen before? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the but the thing is, um, so so that's what Yoon and Yoon has been saying. But right. then there's also Kwon Young said the unification minister, ah. and what he suggests is actually quite audacious, I should say, because oh. the idea of it is that it has to be two pillars. One is economy and one is military and political. And that what Kwon Young-se and also National Security Office people have been stressing so far is that basically we will need more time to come up with details on this, but there will be definitely something about military and to address North Korea's security concerns. 
Uh, so Kwon Young Se, the unification minister, was saying something like, "Oh, we can um, let each other uh, observe each other's uh, military drills, so we can make sure that it's not hostile towards towards each other and build trust." But I thought President Yoon said that security guarantees were not possible. Were so not that's on the, table. the thing. That's so the unification is kind of going off piste here a little bit, to use a skiing metaphor. Well, context here is. Uh, Kwon Young-se is like, uh, I think he's a four or five term lawmaker. Oh, okay. uh, he's like very, very high level. Right. He's like, a, you know, people all thought that he would be a prime minister. This is not his first rodeo. Yeah. And also, um, I think it's more like they have discussed this together. But Yoon and Kwon. Of course, right. yeah, they were in the work report meeting on this, and okay. they. I think the the ground general rule of thumb here is that they do admit that they need to handle some sort of military and security related concerns when it comes to North Korea. That's why they are calling it audacious because it's different, allegedly different from the MB era, just focusing on economy. Mm. But so far, there's not much detail on the military part. That's the problem. And when Yoon said South Korea cannot provide security guarantee to North Korea during his presser recently, I think he was real reiterating what Kwon Young-se actually said earlier about how it will need cooperation from other countries like the United States uh. because North Korea wants to negotiate with the United States, not just with South Korea. Well, yeah, and, and sometimes not, uh, not at all with South Korea, only the United exactly. States. Exactly. What's been the response to this plan from North Korea experts? Well, some people are saying that, um, especially people who have been involved in the previous conservative and progressive administration's um, idea on approaching North Korea is that this is not new, I mm -hmm. think. A lot of people were saying that this is not creative, but uh, 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 if they do come up with details on military and security concerns related things, that there may be some progress. But to be fair, in Hanoi Summit, they already been there. Mm -hmm. They, they tried to um, discuss this, but South Korea sort of failed. So a lot of experts that I've talked to were actually saying this is not new from the point of Singapore summit and Hanoi summit and where they achieved then. because And some people even said that, that they went backwards from it because they're only providing details on the economy. And another uh, batch of experts that I've talked to, they were actually saying that this is not really good for national security. Um, say, um, uh, uh, and other people who are on the extreme other side were saying that, oh, although... Um, this is actually helpful. This is compatible with the um, joint drills that North Korea keeps saying that they are hostile because um, it basically shows that if you stop doing something something hostile, we can provide you all these great stuff. But if you do it, we'll have to do our drills too. Well, what about North Korea? What, what's North Korea's response? I believe that uh, Kim Yo-jong made a statement. Right. They were saying that they are these are all quotes they're foolish, disgusting, um, nauseating, um, absurd, so on and so forth. All the adjectives you would think of when mm. you don't really like something. Ifang, back to you. What did United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres say late August about human rights violations in North Korea? Well, um, yeah, the UN Chief Antonio Guterres, he, he called for efforts to prosecute and bring to justice human rights violators in North Korea. And he did that in his annual uh, reports on human rights violations in uh, North Korea. Ah, okay. And, and so was this uh, to the General Assembly? Uh, yes, this is to, uh, released to the General Assembly. You can also just read it online. Mm -hmm. um, basically, when a human rights situation in a country is very severe, the General Assembly can request uh, the um, UN chief uh, to release a specific report on the situation. 
And uh, when it comes to North Korea, the General Assembly has been requesting a report every year since 2007. So every year the UN chief releases this kind of report saying, what's, this, what's the latest status? Mm-hmm. Okay, so every year he releases that report. But, uh, but in actually calling for a prosecution of human rights violators, is, is there a precedent for that? Is that something that secretary generals have said each year, or is this a new thing? I'm not sure if the secretary general has specifically uh, uh, called for that, but this is definitely not new. Mm-hmm. Um, back in 2014, you had the Commission of Inquiry report, which sure. was this gigantic, almost like, what was it, 372-page yeah. report really outlining human rights violations in in detail. Um, and it's kind of this landmark report, uh, first time that the UN really did a really big um, investigation. And in that report, at the end, uh, the commission also asked for, you know, some kind of justice uh, in the long in the long term. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, this is, uh, you know, I, I just can't get over it. It seems like a really big deal, the, the Secretary General actually calling for prosecutions. Uh, what would be the forum for that? Where would, where would you prosecute? Would that be uh, in, in The Hague at the... Uh was it the International Criminal Court? Would that be where it would? Would that be the appropriate legal forum for that kind of prosecutions? Oh, it doesn't mention any specifics. Mm. It literally just says, you know, um, the Secretary General recommends ah. that uh, the DPRK prosecute and bring to justice those accused of having committed human rights violations. So it's actually calling on right. North Korea itself mm. to uh, to do that. Um, and then he also. Uh, declared an immediate, you know, he he wants an immediate stop of the death penalty, mm-hmm. among other things. But I think what's most interesting is how this report is different from last year. Go on. So back in uh, 2021, when the Secretary General released this report, mm. um, it was it was not so stern, and and um, it was the first report after COVID. Yep. And when you read the language, it's really a different tone. So, for example, back in 2021, the Secretary General um, said in his conclusions, while acknowledging the efforts for the DPRK to prevent the spread of COVID-19, the ongoing closure of borders borders that has increased restrictions on freedom of movement. Um, So... I think the most important part of this sentence is while acknowledging the efforts mm. of the DPRK to prevent COVID-19. In this year, actually, the UN says, uh, the UN chief says, the closure of the country's borders um, have enabled the government to further suppress the flow of information and ideas among its people. That's a very different tone, yeah. It's a very different tone, and I think that's the most interesting part. Not the fact—I mean, these things have been said before, also by UN bodies. But if you compare it with last year's report, it's 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 much more confrontational. Yeah. How has North Korea responded to this? North Korea isn't has not yet responded to this. This report was released uh, last week. Okay. But uh, also last week. Um, the new special rapporteur on North Korean human rights uh, came to Seoul for yeah. the first time, uh, Professor Elizabeth Salmon. And North Korea has responded to her visit, saying that they will never acknowledge this position of special rapporteur. And special rapporteur is an outside expert related to the UN, but right. not not on the UN's payroll, ah. but 
someone who has an expertise on human rights violations to do their own separate mm -hmm. investigation. And to uh, the new rapporteur's visit, North Korea said it will never recognize this position and also called her out for uh, touring around with human scum. And human scum is a term that the North Korea often uses mm -hmm. to refer to defectors. Yeah. Yeah. How has South Korea responded to, to uh, uh, Antonio Guterres' comments? I think from South Korea also there hasn't really been uh, at least a public response to this report yet. Uh, but the General Assembly will definitely be discussing this report uh, later and also the Human Rights Council. So I think, uh, yeah, in due course we will see more and more uh, responses to this report. Okay, well let's see if that leads to something. Uh, I'm going to go to James next uh, to talk about South Korea-China friction. James, last month it was the 30th anniversary since the Republic of Korea cut ties with the Republic of China, also known as Taiwan, and normalized relations with the People's Republic of China. How was that 30th anniversary celebrated by Seoul and Beijing? They both held events in each other's capitals and um, they were streamed live to one another. The two leaders exchanged well-wishing letters. Um, I think more than the actual anniversary itself was, was uh, what's more interesting than that is what was in the lead up to the anniversary. And it was all of this, uh, all of these controversies over THAADS, the US uh, missile defense system that's yeah. deployed in South Korea. And also the uh, recent visit of US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, Asia, and uh, South Korea. Mm. That caused a lot of these. These things caused a lot of tension in the relationships. Also, I should add the um, the Chip Four Alliance over semiconductors, which is this uh, this group that, that that Washington's trying to make um, with Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea to really band together to strengthen that supply chain. Um, and China is, of course, not happy about that one. Uh, James, what's the Three No's policy and who created it? The Three No's policy was created in 2017 um, under the Moon Jae-in administration, Yoon suk yeols uh, predecessor. So we go back to the Park Geun-hye administration, um, who was before Moon Jae-in. South Korea um, said, OK, we're going to deploy this U.S. missile defense system. China says, uh, we really don't like this because this system's radar can be used to track our missile forces, even though you say it's all about North Korea. We're worried about the effects that, that it will have on, on us, especially since it's a U.S. missile defense system, right? Um, then power transfers from the conservatives to the progressives in South Korea. Um, Moon Jae-in comes along and he says, okay, um, we'll agree to uh, these, these three no's. We're going to have no more um, THAAD deployments, more than the ones that we already have. Um, we're not going to participate in a U.S. Uh, missile uh, alliance with um, Japan, and etc. And we're also um, not going to enter into a trilateral military alliance with the U.S. and Japan. So we have the Moon Jae-in administration, five years of that. We're into the Yoon Song-yeol administration. And now Yoon is saying um, we're not necessarily going to uh, follow this uh, three no's promise because according to the Yoon administration, it wasn't this uh, official agreement. 
Now, the important thing to remember, though, is that um, Yoon has been trying to portray himself as, as this, um, especially in the election, he was trying to portray himself as this uh, pro-alliance, pro-America person. He's going to stand up to China and North Korea, unlike Moon Jae-in. He was really trying to draw that comparison. Um, but now it seems, you know, uh, just as many of uh, his South Korean presidents before him, um, even though he says he's going to uh, be really tough on China, he's always got to bear in mind that while the uh, South Korea relies on the US for its security, China is a really, really important economic partner. So it's very reluctant to do anything that would disrupt that relationship too much. And just to wrap all this up, um, even though it says it, um, you know, it, it won't go by these three no's, um, it also hasn't announced any plans to deploy more THAAD. So it might be more messaging than actual intention. It might just be trying to look strong to the domestic audience, look strong to the US, while not actually doing any, anything that would um, uh, prompt a Chinese retaliation. Is there evidence that the previous Moon administration actually signed any deal or, or concretized this uh, acceptance of the three no's policy? I'm not sure to what extent uh, off the top of my head this was formalized. But I mean, this this was the result of, of meetings and it was quite a big deal at the time. Right, but governments change and policies can change. And unless they've actually signed a treaty and it's ironclad and it's been ratified, then it doesn't mean much, does it? Uh, I can't comment on that. But the, the important thing is, I think that uh, this is not the way that Beijing sees things. Beijing sees this as a promise. And South Korea, you guys have to um, keep this promise. Briefly, what's at risk here for both South Korea and China? I think it's a very delicate situation. Even um, China could um, do more economic boycotts like it um, did over the initial deployment five years ago. Um, this would have a big effect on South Korea's economy. Last time it did billions of dollars in, in damage to South Korea's economy. But of course, it also hurts China. So does it really want to do this? Um, from South Korea's point of view, you know, I think um, Yoon is genuine when, when he says that um, South Korea won't uh, sacrifice its security interests just to appease China. I think that is true. But at the same time, I really don't think it, it wants to get too involved in this um, you know, great power conflict between the US and China. I think it really wants to strengthen the alliance because of the threats from North Korea, while at the same time emphasizing to Beijing, look, we have to do this. We have to have this missile defense system here. It's not targeted at you guys. Please keep trading with us. Let's keep making lots of money like we did over the last 30 years. Now, Seoul announced that it would normalize the operations of the existing THAAD battery by the end of August, and that THAAD will, quote, never be a subject of negotiation since it's a matter of security and sovereignty. Now, I'm not used to seeing Seoul stand up so forcefully to Beijing, uh, even though, as you say, it's trying to, President Yoon is trying to walk that tightrope between being pro-alliance and, and not being too anti-China. But he is uh, standing up a bit for Korea. How do you interpret this, James? Well, yes, he he is. But we've also, let's look back at the uh, the Asia visit of uh, House Speaker Pelosi in, in August as well. I mean, Yoon, I think, was the only leader that didn't meet Pelosi in person. He only gave her a phone call. And this was after a lot of 
you know, you won't speak with Pelosi. But was or it FaceTime or audio only? Um, well, I think the important thing so is the, uh, the of the optics of the uh, of, of the situation. It kind of looked like Sol was ignoring Pelosi. There was no delegation that came to meet her at the airport. Um, so I think you know when when you when the U.S. looks at how its um, different partners in the region reacted to Pelosi's visit, it it might have been a little disappointed in uh, how South Korea received her. And I think this is, you know, again, evidence that, yes, ultimately, South Korea is on the American side, um, but it it doesn't want to do anything that will seriously um, disrupt uh, the relationship with China unless absolutely necessary. Now, James, Jong-un told us about the uh, the joint combined drills with the U.S. and ROC militaries. Did China get upset at that too, as North Korea did? Or, and does China no- normally make a fuss about these drills? Or is, this, uh, uh, is it not something that comes up on its radar, so to speak? So Chinese state media uh, did mention these drills. And from China's perspective, the situation on the Korean peninsula, it's not um, North Korea is making nuclear weapons and so... Uh, other countries all have to team together and denounce North Korea. It's more of a, um, we want all sides on the peninsula to calm down. That, ah, yes, yes, the North old, Korea, uh, the, the, the standard play of uh, even-handedness. So uh, mum turns around when driving the car and says to the two kids fighting in the back, now both of you be quiet and sit still or I'll have to stop the car and get mad. Exactly, yes. Um, so it's saying North Korea, you know, don't... Uh, don't launch the missiles. Don't, you know, it'd be better if you didn't do that kind of stuff. But also, mm. US and South Korea, come on. Let's, let's cut all this uh, unnecessary, these military exercises out. Now, of course, from, uh, from China's perspective, I think what it's, it doesn't want um, the situation on the peninsula. It doesn't want tensions to increase because that creates uh, instability on its border, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also um, worried about uh, the US military presence on the peninsula via the Taiwan. Um, after Pelosi's visit, China does all the military drills. It did some military drills um, in, the, in the area of waters near the uh, Korean peninsula, actually. Mm-hmm. And a US recon plane as well took off from the Korean peninsula. So this kind of shows that, yes, um, the US military is stationed in South Korea to deal with the threat from North Korea. But there is kind of this, this regional linkage in the situation. So I think August, if it, if it showed us anything, yes, the, the situation with North Korea is, is, is about North Korea and South Korea. But of course, there's also this great power competition at play between the US and China, and the two Koreas can't escape that. Okay, thank you, James. Last story for today, Yifeng and Jongwen, back to you two. Uh, when a president here in Korea leaves office, they are supposed to hand over their documents to the Republic of Korea Presidential Archives. Uh, and at the start of this month, South Korea's Supreme Prosecutor's Office executed a search warrant on these archives and took into possession some evidence relating to an incident in September 2020. Tell us about that, please. Well, the the wider context of this is that uh, throughout this year, since May, there have been movements from the unit administration and relevant government branches to look into some of the decision-making procedures under the previous Moon Jae-in administration. And this is 
part of it, basically. We saw a lot of uh, raids in the past few months, uh, especially related to two cases on North Korea. One was the 2019 November repatriation of North Korean to North Korean men, and another case is related to the to Edejun, the the South Korean uh, Fisheries Ministry official mm. who was killed by North Korean soldiers in North Korean waters, um, uh, north of the. Uh, northern limit line and this was the september 2020 case and these two cases have been under um spotlight again with the unit administration saying that um they will try to seek the quote-unquote truth related to the moon administration's decision-making procedures during those two cases now does this mean that charges are likely to be filed Uh, we don't know yet i think for now we've seen uh, raids and search and seizures at many uh, government agencies, mm. including uh, Ministry of Unification, uh, National Intelligence Service, which, which is South Korea's main spy agency, right, and also several um, high-level uh, former officials have uh, seen uh, their houses raided. Actually, wow. Um, so it and 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 that includes the ex-Minister of Defense, yeah. uh, former National Intelligence Chief. Um, and the former director of national security. So it's really high-level uh, search and seizures. But I think for, for now, uh, the really big change or like the, really, the thing that would really uh, cause a stir is once the prosecution actually f- starts to file charges to people and agencies, which we haven't seen yet. Haven't seen it yet. Okay, now often in these cases, it seems that uh, no matter how high... Uh, the people who may be involved are that it's somebody somewhere around the mid-level who ends up taking the fall for things like this. I'm just wondering who might end up taking the fall for this tragic incident in uh, in 2020. Any any guesses? Well, I can mention who are on the table for this. For All right, who's on the table? Um, but these are actually a pretty high level, okay. especially when it comes to the September 2020 case. Uh, the um, I talk to the brother of the victim regularly, mm. and he um, he was actually uh, he wanted to know more about what Chang Yong, the then National Security Advisor, was doing at the time, mm-hmm. and the presidential archive raid. He wanted to know more on. What he uh, reported to President Moon, how higher, how high up the decision-making procedure was made by, and so far it seems like they are aiming at, like we said, just pretty high-level officials. Mm. Um, but if we look at the past precedents, um, not exactly the same cases, but when it comes to that controversy surrounding. Uh, late president uh, Ro Mu-hyun when there were media reports and op- uh, the conservative party lawmakers were alleging that uh, the president offered uh, th- some part of the NLL for the yeah. North Korean side. There was a controversy surrounding that. And actually recently, Cho Myung-kyun, the, uh, the, the Blue House official at the time and unification minister later, um, he he got sentenced after a decade long. Ah. Uh, but, so it's going to take a while. It until, could be years, yeah. Right, but um, it's going to be quite difficult uh, because the, there are too many... Uh, points to look into and yep. some of the arguments are like still at the very vague level and meanwhile the brother of the deceased man whom you talk to regularly he's going to the united states next week why is that 
Right. September 13th, um, he is invited by U.S. uh, House of Representatives to testify about this specific case um, uh, for the committee that works on North Korea human rights. Okay. Why in the U.S. rather than here in South Korea? What does he hope to achieve and what can the U.S. actually do in this situation? Well, if you look at it from the family's point of view, uh, they will take whatever chances that they have to make their voices heard. Mm. Like in South Korea, they are speaking to journalists and lawyers and officials and uh, many different types of organizations very regularly to uh, to not make this case be forgotten. And I think it's just in line with that. And when the uh, and when the uh, United Nations Special Rapporteur was here last week um, and over the weekend, he also met her. And what he was asking her to do is to let him speak at the Uni- uh, United Nations, to mm. make a speech and just go to Panmunjom and meet North Korean officials, so on and so forth. Um, her, his requests are far from realistic, mm-hmm. but still, I think the point is him doing whatever he can right. to talk to people who might be interested in the case outside South Korea. Yeah, it shows well. that he really wants to go all the way in finding out the truth about what happened. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it from the family's perspective, it, it, it would be... It's it's very it, it was a very confusing few weeks for them at the time because North Korea wasn't responding to right. uh, asking for joint re- investigation and the South Korean side wasn't saying that much at the time. Now, as we said earlier, there have been uh, a few search and seizure raids by prosecutors on former high-level officials in the Moon Jae-in administration. Is this an example of uh, political reprisals by a new administration against a previous one, or is this actually substantive, or a bit of both? We we've seen people argue that. Um, both sides. Both sides. But um, even if uh, part of these investigations are politically motivated, even the UN has said, uh, you know, we should really investigate these cases. Mm. Uh, a previous uh, special rapporteur on, on North Korean human rights, uh, Thomas Quintana, Quintana yeah. um, on his last visit to Seoul, he said, you know, the family has the right to know, and mm. he understands that you know uh, the, the South Korean government is careful with releasing details mm. because of security concerns. But he said, in this case, I think the right to know weighs mm. more. And also, um, he said, you know, I encourage the different political forces to avoid politi- politicization of the case. Uh-huh. Right. So he was clear about that. Right. But at the same time, he said this needs to be investigated. Hmm. And just lastly, you asked why the United States yeah. for some, uh, for especially the fisheries officials' family, um, having some support from U.S. officials is actually very important for them mm. because the Democratic Party, the uh, opposition party that holds majority right now, the way they were pushing back until now about disclosing information was because the SI, the in the special intelligence related to the case, was actually not just South Korean but the Allies. Ah, okay. Well, that is important. Okay. Final thoughts, 30 seconds from everyone. What's on your radar for the coming days and weeks, James? I think, as always, we're looking out for North Korea's upcoming nuclear test, aren't we? Um, we have, won't happen. Won't happen. Okay, that's one, that one sorted. Yep. Um, no, we have um, a date now, importantly, for China's party congress. Mm. Now, some people were saying that um, North Korea might be waiting uh, for this Congress to be over as not to, uh, you know, disrupt relations with China. So, you know, maybe it will happen after that state. Anyway, we'll yep, be able to... There's your 30 seconds. Oh, okay. there we go. Jongmin. 
we have a holiday coming up in North Korea, Kugujar, September 9th. Mm. That's, uh, what was it? Founding? Founding day of the Republic in 1948. Mm-hmm. Last time it was the, the big one. So they had the paramilitary parade, but this time I don't think it's going to be big, but mm. we'll still keep an eye on that. Um, and also importantly, I think, potentially, the typhoon's going to be very big. Mm. And if it, That's um, this week, tomorrow, yeah, today. If it causes any damages to the to the rice fields or uh, nuclear-related facilities, that's something we have to keep an eye on. Okay, that, ooh, just on time. All right, Ifang? I was actually going to say the same thing in typhoon because uh, it can potentially have gigantic damage on the country that's already uh, under very uh, much pressure. And, and, and it would be interesting to see how North Korea responds uh, if they actually need humanitarian aid from abroad. Right, because we, we have seen that uh, uh, before, notoriously, with, uh, particularly in the mid-1990s when they had their giant famine there, that there were some heavy rains that caused the, uh, the, the call for humanitarian aid. So let's see what happens there. Thank you once again for coming on the roundtable. Jong-Win Kim, James Fretwell and Yifang Bremer. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments of the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access and a free trial membership at membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks as always to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, mouth music, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks very much. Let's take it next time. Bye-bye.